Okay, let's go back to Mark's Gospel this morning. And chapter 11. 38% of Mark's Gospel is devoted to the last week of Christ's life and ministry. The Gospel team finally makes its way to the holy city of Jerusalem, where Jesus will assert his divine authority and be challenged by his enemies. He knows that he will be betrayed into the Jewish uh, council and handed over to the Roman authorities. He knows he will be afflicted and rejected by men, but he also knows that on the third day after the crucifixion, he will rise from the dead and renew the faith and power of his disciples. The scene that lies before us seems to be encouraging as Jesus and a multitude of people approach the city, welcoming, uh, welcoming him as its king. But we need to remember that a different crowd of people were in the city who have not made their minds up about the Lord Jesus' identity. He is about to make himself known in a very radical and powerful way that draws attention to himself and to his authority in person. Up to this point, he has largely told people uh, to be quiet about him, to not spread uh, around what they have experienced from him. He's not trying to make waves with the religious rulers, although he never backs down from them. And his disciples have confessed him as Messiah, the Son of God. Others have chosen to follow him, such as this group that's coming with him from the city of Jericho. And now the time's come for Jesus to make himself known in Jerusalem, which has become the center of opposition. And one of his purposes is to reveal the fruitless hypocrisy of Israel's religion that will result in the destruction of the temple and the city in years to come. His procession into Jerusalem, his pronouncement upon the fig tree, and his disruption of the defiling activities in the temple point out the hypocrisy and consequent judgment of the nation. We find that faithful followers will receive him as their king, even though at this time they do not clearly understand what that means. The fruitless hypocrisy of those who go through the motions of worship and service will be revealed and judged. And the new source of spiritual power will not be centered in a physical location such as the temple, but in the prayers of the new community of the faithful. As we look into this section, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful today for the word of God, for the life of Christ that we find there. And Lord, as we have been tracing uh, the Lord's progress from the far north in his uh, home area to the city of Jerusalem, help us to picture what was happening there. Help us to realize that we cannot be like ancient Israel and have a fruitless form of religion. Help us, Lord, to realize that these things should be rooted out of us that are hypocritical and that we should bear fruit unto righteousness. We're thankful, Lord, that Jesus 
uh, came into this city knowing what was going to happen to him, uh, knowing that he would uh, pay the penalty of our sin, yet, Lord, knowing that he would be raised up from the dead for our justification. Bless us as we come before your table with these thoughts we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to share with you this morning in verses 1 through 11 is that Jesus is recognized as Messiah by his faithful followers. Now, this event occurs on the Sunday of Passover week. It's the day after the Sabbath. And it's likely the same day they left Jericho since they arrived late in the day, according to verse 11. And as Jesus arrives, we want to note three things here. First of all, the preparation for the Messiah coming into the city. We find this in the first six verses. Now, Bethphage and Bethany are very near Jerusalem, located on the Jericho Road. Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem at the foot of the eastern ridge of the Mount of Olives, which at its highest point is about 100, 100 feet above the city of Jerusalem. So you could look down on the city and on the temple area from its peak. Uh, Bethany was likely the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and was probably the place that Jesus retired to in the evenings during this week. Now, as they approach these towns, he instructs two of his disciples to retrieve a young donkey for his purposes in verses 2 and 3. Now, it may be that Jesus somehow made arrangements about this earlier, and now the time has come for these things to be accomplished. And if these two disciples who are sent to this place were asked about what they're doing, they simply needed to say, the Lord has need of it. Now, we might interpret that as referring to Jesus himself, but it's more likely that it's in reference to God the Father because it was allowable for animals and other things to be confiscated for God's purposes. And since this was a feast week, the people would understand uh, someone coming and asking this favor. Now, the two disciples follow precisely Jesus' instructions and they bring the colt to him. But what is the significance of all this. Why did Jesus do this? Well, it falls into his purpose of revealing who he is, coming right out there with it, something he's been reticent to do in the past. Now, you'll remember that as they left Jericho, he healed a man by the name of Bartimaeus who was blind. And in that scenario, we found that Barnabas was addressing Jesus in an unusual way as son of David. And that has a political and national significance in Israel's history that people would be aware of that. And it's associated, of course, with the progeny of David and a future coming kingdom and the Messiah as its king. Now, this same crowd who had gathered in Jericho is accompanying Jesus up to the feast of Passover, and they're, they're, they're coming with him, and this developed into a pretty large crowd. These people heard that proclamation, uh, and when they saw Jesus, or when they would see Jesus riding on uh, the donkey's foal, it would recall to their minds 
Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew he was fulfilling this verse of scripture. And this would have brought to mind to the people, this is what's going on. So he's fulfilling ancient prophecy and those who faithfully followed him would recognize that truth. Now, beginning verse seven, we have the second thing here and this is the procession itself up to the city of Jerusalem. Now, as they move forward, uh, the disciples... Uh, put their mantles on the back of the colt, kind of like a saddle. And then the people begin removing their outer cloak, their outer garment, and putting that in front of the donkey as it's making its way up to Jerusalem. They cut some branches off some um, uh, leafy trees and they lay those things out. And again, this is a procession that would have been somewhat familiar to them for a royal personage, a famous person, uh, coming into a city. Now, it wasn't anything like a Roman procession where the emperor might be involved or a general might be involved in coming into the city of Rome, uh, having conquered uh, a city or a country and bringing the captives behind him and all the loot from the battle. Uh, on his uh, uh, white steed, uh, something that's of great pomp uh, in in those days. But Jesus comes in this lowly fashion, as was prophesied of him. Uh, He is coming lowly and meek and humble on the back of this not even full-grown donkey. And as the procession moves forward, then the people begin crying out. And this is very important because you've got a huge crowd of people. They're seeing all this happen. They have in their mind the idea of the son of David, of King Messiah, and they begin crying this out as they approach the city. Now, the word Hosanna means save now or or save. And originally we find it in some of the Psalms. And it meant to cry out for deliverance in a time of need. But as time moved forward and people uh, regularly came up to the city during the feast weeks, it became kind of an exclamation of blessing and adoration associated with welcoming worshipers as they came into the holy city of Jerusalem. But now they add to this some other thoughts. Blessed is is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but then blessed is the kingdom of our father David. So here we have that messianic undertone being brought out in those words. And this signals the messianic recognition on the part of the crowd. Now Mark leaves out one of Matthew's phrases, which said, behold, your king is coming to you. And remember, Mark has not been emphasizing at all the political nature of Messiah. 
Matthew does. He presents Jesus as the king of Israel in his gospel. Mark does not. He presents Jesus as the humble servant of the Lord coming now into the city of Jerusalem. But the indication is clear. The crowd proclaims that Jesus is related to this coming kingdom of David. And of course, the broader idea, they're singing out that he is the king, even though they don't really understand what that fully means because Jesus didn't come the first time to reign on earth. He came to save us. Now, that leads to the last thought here in verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So now we're focusing on what Jesus did as the people are kind of dispersing and leaving because the hour is already late. But when he went in there, he looked around at all things. Now, he didn't go in there as a tourist. He's been there uh, at previous feasts during his ministry. He knows the layout. Um, He knows how things operate, but he went in there not as a tourist to see the beauty of the place. He went in there to look at the condition of the place, and he's perusing these things, and he's focusing on these things, and he's forming a plan of action that will be carried out the next day. Nothing will be done this day because it's late in the afternoon. The city gates close at 6 p.m., so he's going to retire to Bethany to spend the night there and then come back the next day. But he's seen what's going on, and he's going to do something drastic about it on the next day. So he went out to Bethany with the 12. So what happens the next day? Now we ought to think about this for a moment, that there are two groups of people. There are really two multitudes, if you will. There's this group that has followed Jesus from Jericho up to the city. These people are the ones who are crying out, Hosanna. It's not the people who are already in the city who are doing this. It's the ones who are on the way to the city. And these people are following Jesus, and very likely among them is a large group of people who really has put their faith and their trust in him. But when he gets into the city, everything changes. Uh, Matthew records that when he came into the city, of course that causes a bit of a a stir, And people start asking, well, who is this? Who is this person? And they have to tell them who it is. So they're not exactly sure. They have made their minds up about who the Lord Jesus is. And then we find also that uh, there were some Pharisees in this crowd, either, either going with them or in the city itself. And they're crying out to Jesus, make your disciples stop doing this. And they're, of course, the enemies of Christ. And then the crowd is uncommitted. So when we come to those who are crying out to crucify, it's not likely the ones who accompanied him to the city, but those who rejected him in the city. And that will be brought out later. So faithful disciples have made up their minds as to Christ's identity. They accompany him to the city of Jerusalem. They don't really fully understand yet what's happening. They will, as time proceeds, 
But they place their faith in who he is, and God will open their eyes to full disclosure as uh, these things unfold. Now, that leads us to the second thing we want to see here in this passage, and that is that Jesus exposes the hollow trappings of hypocrisy. And we find this in verses 12 through 21. Now, the two incidents that we find recorded here are really kind of bound together in the narrative. Mark likes to do this. He often weaves uh, uh, two stories together to stress a point. And this really helps us to understand Jesus' pronouncement against the unproductive fig tree. So let's take a look at that first. The next day, verse 12, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. So they're going up to Jerusalem. This is a two-mile walk. Uh, They're probably not rushing it. So it's going to take them a little while to get there. And he sees a fig tree from a distance, and this fig tree is in full bloom. And so he goes up to it, and he looks through its branches, and there's no fruit there. But then we find something interesting. Mark tells us it wasn't the season for figs. So if it wasn't the season for figs, why did Jesus look for them? Why did he expect there to be any on that tree? Well, there's a possible explanation. I don't know if for sure if that's it or not, but... Uh, I read that figs might appear in their very earliest stages uh, because this is like four to six weeks early. And even then, people could take the the little beginnings of the fig and eat it, although it might be a little bit bitter. I don't know if that's the case or not. So why then would Jesus make such a pronouncement that no one ever eat any fruit from that tree again when it wasn't a time for the fruit anyways. This is the only miracle we find in God's word where Jesus actually destroyed something. And we kind of feel, well, kind of stunned by it. You know, why is it there? But the disciples see what's going on. They heard what Jesus said. And this was probably for them and their understanding of what's about to take place in just a little while. Now, the fig tree is symbolizing something. It's symbolizing a truth about the nation of Israel. Even though it did not have ripe fruit yet, it should have had some buds, the beginning of that fruit, And its leaves were in full bloom, suggesting that there ought to be something on it, yet it was barren. It produced nothing. And this really represented the spiritual state of the nation of Israel as Jesus enters the city. It's an object lesson, perhaps drawn from some Old Testament passages that they might have been uh, reminded of, such as Jeremiah chapter 8. The Lord says through him, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, 
and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. And that's about to happen. Or Micah chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among them. It's a picture of the way Israel was. They looked like they should have fruit, but they were barren. There was nothing there. Of course, Israel professed to know and worship God. People came up to the temple uh, at least three times a year, or they were supposed to, to offer their sacrifices and their worship before the Lord. But its leaders had become corrupt and hypocritical. They led the people astray in their actions and in their uh, traditions, which were more important than the word of God itself, their failure to live by God's holy standards. Uh, Those traditions were more important to them than the very word of God. And so there was no real fruit in their lives, just this outward show of things. Now Mark does not record the incident that Matthew does where Jesus pronounced his judgments upon the Pharisees and the scribes, but you probably remember those. Jesus said, woe to them, uh, uh, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he repeated that seven times, giving examples of their hypocrisy. And such hypocrisy eventually ends in judgment like that of the fig tree and like the prophets of old had stated. They had the outer trappings of righteousness and claimed to follow God, but their lives were barren of spiritual fruit. So the Lord's action in the temple bears this all out. So he's made this pronouncement to the fig tree, and then he goes into the temple once again, beginning at verse 15. <clears throat> so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Now let's think about the temple just for a moment here. Now, this is recorded in all four Gospels, so it's very important, it's very significant. One commentator wrote, planned for prime time and maximum exposure, it was a demonstration calculated to interrupt business as usual and bring the imminence of God's reign abruptly, forcefully to the attention of all. Now, Herod's temple uh, was much greater, grander, elaborate than the second temple built after the exile into Babylon. It had not yet even been completed, although Herod's been dead for at least three decades. It was a lot larger than that second temple, far more ornate, and something the Jews took great pride in. And when Jesus enters the temple, he enters the first court called the court of the Gentiles. Now, this court was immense. It was 1,000 by 1,600 feet. 
and it was encompassed or encompasses 35 acres of uh, uh, temple precincts. So when Jesus went in there, obviously uh, he couldn't uh, cover that whole area when he began doing this. But in one central place, he begins to chase these people out. And I'm sure that it didn't take long for all the other places where this might be going on heard about this action of this person coming in there and disrupting everything. So what was the problem? When people came to Jerusalem during these feast weeks, they would not bring animals with them. They would purchase them at the te- uh, for sacrificing in the temple. Uh, they would have to exchange uh, money that would be Greek or Roman coinage for that which is acceptable to the Jews. They wouldn't allow that kind of uh, money. So they needed money exchangers. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with that in itself. Uh, the problem was, at time previous to this, all this was going on out in the city or out in the outskirts. But now it had all moved into this court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be a place where Gentiles could come and pray to the Lord and worship God. They couldn't go any farther to the temple than that. And that's why Jesus made this quotation. Uh, All of this kind of oozes the hypocrisy of the people. And uh, you can't go in there and pray. At least it's going to be be noisy. It's going to be smelly. Uh, People are going to be shouting and maybe arguing about the price of things and things of that nature. So who's going to be able to really concentrate on praying to God there? It also mentions here that people were carrying their wares through this part of the temple as kind of a shortcut to get someplace else. So all this really detracted from the holy purposes of the temple, of what it was there for, and it made it commonplace. And these allowances uh, really were showing the hypocrisy that had come into the nation who's supposed to be worshiping God during these times especially. Now we come down to verse 17, and Jesus begins to teach them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? In other words, that was the purpose of this uh, outer court for the Gentiles, so they could pray to the Lord, so they could worship the true God. But you have made it a den of thieves. So all these commercial enterprises are going on there. And these money changers and merchants had made this like a place, a safe place for the robbers to go when they got all of their loot. And they thought they were in the temple precincts. Well, you know, they're protected. The Lord's not going to destroy his temple. So this uh, thought is really drawn again from Jeremiah's complaint that the people of his day committed all kinds of sins. Then they came to the temple to worship as though nothing was wrong. It was all hypocrisy. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, he predicted the destruction of the temple. And in Mark chapter 13, we're going to see Jesus doing the same thing. So when a person came to the temple of God, it should have been to worship. 
to offer sacrifice for sin and receive forgiveness, to pray and to make petition to the Lord, these things were all going on outwardly, but there was no fruit being produced in the life, in the heart. Worship was on the surface. Remember, Jesus said, on the lips, not in the heart, as previously noted. So Israel's religion was just as barren as that fig tree. Now, Jesus has a a radical action that he has done that will no doubt draw attention to him. But note here, the religious ruler's radical response to this in verse 18. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. So they want Jesus to be killed, to be assassinated. That's not the first time this has been thought about. Remember back in chapter 3, the Pharisees and Herodians wanted to plan on how to get rid of him way back then. But they fear him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So through the remainder of this week, Jesus will be teaching. We know that it is authoritative teaching. It's teaching that makes people aware and awed and amazed. And because of that, they're they're coming to him, crowding around him, so they're afraid to do anything. They're fearful of Jesus and his authority, taking away from their authority, but also if they tried to do something, it would backfire among the people. So they're right now kind of in a quandary. But of course, this is all going to go to God's plan, not necessarily their plan. So uh, when evening comes, he goes back out of the city to stay in Bethany. Now what happens the next day? We find that Jesus expresses to his disciples that faith and prayer are now going to be the new source of power for his kingdom. As he comes into, uh, we come into the new age, the church age, if you will. So, the next morning, they go by that withered fig tree again. As they pass by, verse 20, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now, that is totally unnatural. As a matter of fact, you might say that that would be impossible, that The day before, it's in full bloom, it's in full health. The next morning, they come by, and it's all withered up. No leaves, nothing. So this is something supernatural. And Peter, remembering what Jesus said, said to him, Rabbi, teacher, master, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So they take note of what happened, we're not exactly sure if they grasped the symbolism of it, but they're aware that Jesus has done something for some purpose, and so he makes this statement. Now we've learned, again, that this was a symbolic act. It's a picture of the state of Israel and the future uh, result of that hypocrisy that will Uh, will be the end of of the temple and the city in 70 AD. But the Lord doesn't really 
deal with that directly now, the Lord moves on to something else. He focuses on the power of faith and the power of prayer. That's real religion. That's unhypocritical. So in response to what Peter notices here, Jesus answered and said, have faith in God. We may kind of wonder, well, does that really hook into this narrative that has been going on here? How come he didn't say a little bit more about the fig tree? Well, Israel's problem was that it doesn't have genuine faith in God. It's got this hypocritical, non-productive relationship with God, this simply outer. So only a remnant of people really when you put together all the places that Jesus has been, have really followed him. After he's raised from the dead, there's only 120 people gathered in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes. That's not really very many. So of all those who have heard and seen his works, relatively few persevere in believing him. And eventually... The city and this wonderful great temple that they were so proud of is going to be destroyed because actually it's become an idol to them. The temple, its rituals, the traditions of Judaism being taught by the Pharisees, uh, that became the nation's God rather than the Lord himself. So Jesus is stressing through what he says Uh, that genuine faith in God trusts him to do what seems to be impossible. So what's happened to the fig tree is really something that wasn't possible unless a miraculous thing was done to cause it. You think back to previous teachings and conversations, um, A camel can't go through the eye of a needle like a rich man can't be saved. Or, as Jesus says here, if you have faith to move a mountain from this place to that place, it'll happen. Well, these are all expressions of something that's humanly impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Faith is the key to fruitfulness. Faith is the key to uh, service and doing things for God. So that's what he's bringing out here as he uh, cites to them to have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he'll have whatever he says. But you've got to trust that God can do it. It may seem impossible to you, but it's never impossible to God. So in this new age, faith is going to be expressed through your prayer. Your, your prayer relationship to God. This place where the Gentiles were supposed to be allowed to pray, you kind of ruined it for them. But now we don't have to go to a place like that to pray. We can pray uh, to God directly as an individual or as a corporate body. They can gather together and they can pray together. He says in verse 24, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you, plural, ask when you pray, believe them, 
believe that you receive them and you will have them. So he's talking about the idea of God's people not gathering in a temple or a location necessarily, but gathering together as a people and as people praying together for God to move, for God to act, even in situations that may appear to be humanly impossible. And God says, if you believe that I can do it, you'll have the request to your prayer. Now again, these admonitions about prayer are not carte blanche. They're not a a check with no parameters. They always have to be in the will of God for God's purposes to be fulfilled. But Jesus is emphasizing that he has power to answer our petitions even about things that you don't think really could happen. And one final thing is added here about prayer and what is connected to, and that's in verses 25 and 26. Now, we know that in the Gospels, these sayings are in other contexts. But the authors often bring these things together and they put them in a context that supports uh, and is related to what they're saying about uh, Jesus' life, something going on there. And so he may have imported these things and added them here. Jesus could have said them. Uh, He certainly did say them at some point in time. But now Mark brings out that whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now, we can go to the Lord's Prayer, and we find that there. And we find it some other occasions. So, Uh, we have the privilege of prayer going directly to God, not through a priest or somebody else, but directly to God. But there are things that will hinder that prayer and wrong relationship with another person will hinder that prayer. So you have to come to God with a forgiving heart if you want your sins to be forgiven and if you want uh, answers to your own prayers. So that's in here as well. We need to have a forgiving spirit as we go to the Lord and we seek his power for the things that we need, uh, for service, for whatever it might be. And you remember the disciples have been guilty of uh, selfish ambition, uh, arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, those attitudes have to be removed if prayers to be answered and the impossible to be accomplished. So this section then emphasizes Jesus being honored by faithful disciples. Then laying down the gauntlet, if you will, of his true authority to the religious leaders, condemning hypocritical worship that does not display spiritual fruit, and then emphasizing God's power in prayer. So let's draw a few applications. First of all, the disciples learned over time that Jesus came the first time to save us, not to be an earthly king. That hasn't hit them yet. It will in a few days. But those who trust in his salvation acknowledge him as Lord and King of their lives today. Uh, they would, uh, we would be among those who were praising Jesus as he goes up 
uh, to the city of Jerusalem, not understanding everything about what was going on, but accepting him for who he was. So are we among those who submit to the Lord Jesus, not just as our Savior, but also as our Lord and our King? Secondly, hypocrisy is among the worst of sins. It professes a faith without any works. Religious tradition, outward adherence to standards, dishonoring the Lord's holiness, appearing to be something you're not, all that is hypocritical. All that needs to be done away with. It should be rooted out by someone who really has faith in the Lord. Uh, A person who's like that is really... um, as barren as the the fig tree was. And finally, again, the Lord speaks of faith and prayer, how these things are intertwined together. The power of Christ to do wondrous things is available to us today in prayer. What we ask in prayer, believing that God can accomplish, he says he will do that. Might be that it does involve healing or moving seeming mountains, or threading a camel through the eye of a needle. We think it's impossible, but we have to trust God that he's able to do that which will fulfill his purposes. So do we pray with that truth in mind? Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you'll bless your word to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to each day Submit to you as our Savior and Lord. Help us, Lord, to obey your word. Help us, Lord, to fulfill our purpose here in this world. Help us not to be a false worshiper or false professor. Help us, Lord, to realize when we play the hypocrite. Lord, we usually can sense that through the Holy Spirit. So help us, Lord, to root out any sense of um, a lack of proper spiritual fruit of not really being what we say that we are. And Lord, again, help us to be a people of prayer, whether it be personal or as a family or as the family of God. Help us, Lord, to um, look to you for your power to be accomplished by faith and prayer. Bless us as we come before your table, which again reminds us of what happens at the end of the week that we've been studying today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.